So a couple of months ago, a good friend of mine, Mike Moodian, gave me a book, Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero. And I didn't really care. Long dead boxer, black and white photos, meh. So despite Mike saying it's one of the best boxing books he's ever read, I set it aside and really never thought twice. Then when the pandemic broke out, I saw the book, picked it up, started reading, and I swear to God, I could not put the thing down. It's brilliant page by page. It's research galore. It's vibrant color. Just brilliant. An all-star level sports biography. And it reminded me that sometimes, truly, you can't judge a book by its black and white cover. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Christopher Klein, the author of the aforementioned Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero, which I'm telling you is probably the most underrated sports biography written in my lifetime. This is episode number 148. Let's sling some yay. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, Christopher, this is new turf for me, which is I always have these podcasts scheduled way in advance, but a friend of mine named Mike Moodian a couple of weeks ago gave me a book called Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero, written by you. And because of this pandemic, I have not put this thing down. I think it's one of the best sports books I've ever read. I think it's just insanely good. And I'm so moved by the spirit of your book that I said, fuck it. I'm getting this guy on tonight. And here it is 1130 PM in your time, in your uh, neck of the woods. I think this is one of the best sports books I've ever read. I think it's just freaking genius. And I, uh, I thank you for doing the podcast. Well, I I appreciate it. And I got to say, it's, uh, I'm glad something came out of this uh, episode, I guess then, but uh, (laughs) it sort of was fortuitous that I had each each year we go on vacation to uh, Arizona, and last year I brought along your USFL book because I think you know we're same age, same love of the USFL. Got through about a hundred pages and didn't finish it, and life took over. Went back again last week, finally got through it, and absolutely loved it. I mean, just the amount of research that you put into it was just. Amazing. And it, it was just, just the right break from reality <laughs> that, that I needed. So well, I appreciate uh, that. But there's, but that, all right. But, the, but here's the thing you can say like, Oh, great research and blah, blah, blah. Like you wrote a book. This is what I can't get past. And I, this is what I want to go right into. John O. Sullivan, mm-hmm. born in 1858, died in 1918. Nobody who knew him is alive. And mm-hmm. I would never, ever, ever, ever in my life do a book where nobody is, where everyone is dead. I would just wouldn't do it. It would just be too, too daunting for me. And I am fascinated because this is a, th- these podcasts tend to be sort of a deep dive into reporting and writing. Mm. I don't even know what would make one write a book about someone who's been dead for a hundred years. Right. So Jeff, so that's the difference between you and me, because I would find daunting the prospect of trying to find 200 people on the phone and going through old media guides to finding like the head cheerleader on the LA Express. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that, that's just, you know, I, I say I, I kind of prefer working with dead people. You know, you know, you don't have to worry about them. Return your calls. You can work on your own pace. 
So, and I, I sort of found a little niche in this Gilded Age time period with a couple of my recent books. And I, I do a lot of writing for the History Channel. So I'm very comfortable working. Um, you know, it was great now doing this research because, you know, some of it can be done in archives, but so much can just be done sitting at your desk, going through old newspapers, online digital archives. And it's, I, I love just going down the rabbit hole of, of doing the research and, and being able to do it from, you know, this 19th century time period was something that, that I really got into. So, um, you know, it, it sort of just fit with sort of my interest in that time period and just the way that I like to do that research is to do it on my own timetable. Anytime I need to, I can, just, you know, I, I could be working at 1130 at night. I don't have to worry about getting people on the phone. So it, it you know, that's the kind of writing research that I like to do. All right. But what makes you so, so John L. Sullivan, for people who may not know, uh, he was, you know, largely, uh, considered the, uh, first of all, the last heavyweight champion of bare knuckle, uh, boxing, uh, the first real boxing superstar, one of the highest paid, you know, boxers, athletes of his era. Um, what makes you sitting here? Well, I guess you wrote it five years ago, sitting there in 2015 or 2014. Mm. What makes you think, uh, John L. Sullivan, that's the book I'm going to do. So the book I had done before that was called The Die Hard Sports Fans Guide to Boston. Um, now probably selling for about 99 cents around, uh, around <laughs> town. Um, and it was sort of a travel guide slash history into all sorts of different sports from, you know, the Red Sox to Northeastern football when, when they had it. Uh, but Sullivan was a guy that I came across and I just found him such a fascinating figure. And, you know, I was looking for a good meaty subject, preferably one that was Boston based because it'd be easier for me to do the research. Um, Irish American, I've got Irish roots. So it, I, I was drawn into that. I'm not a real big boxing fan. That's not, that's not what got me into it. What really drew me in was finding out that he really is America's first sports superstar. And if we think that America, you know, that sports is America's secular faith, he's not just among the pantheon of gods. He really is our Zeus. He's the one that sets the model for the modern athlete that's still there 140 years later. So. He's the first athlete to earn a million dollars. He's endorsing products. He's starring in theatrical productions. He has his own sports bar, flirts with running for political office. All these things that athletes have been doing ever since. And he's doing it. He's doing it 40 years before Babe Ruth. You know, he, he's eating and drinking wild abandon. He is running with the law. His boozing, his womanizing are in the newspapers daily. All these things that we think of with Babe Ruth, John L. Sullivan is doing 40 years beforehand and seeing what an important figure he was in sports history and also to Irish America because, you know, he is the symbolic of the world's strongest man as a heavyweight champion. And he's got Irish blood running through his veins and such a powerful cultural moment for these you know Irish immigrants who many of them had come during the great hunger in Ireland fleeing famine and they come to America and here's the son of two Irish immigrants who is seen as the world's most powerful man 
a very important cultural figure in that sense, too. So it really is his role in sports history, his role as a cultural figure, his role as being this template for the modern athlete that really drew me into this story. Do you have to convince, I feel like every time I write a book proposal, I need to convince publishers, not just that it's a good book, but why this book will sell, like why this has the potential to sell 100,000 copies. And it seems like a book on John L. Sullivan, that's a tough thing to convince publishers that it's going to sell a shitload of copies. Do you not go that route? Like, do you, do you convince yourself this has the potential to sell big or is it not about sales? Is it about sort of passion for the subject? Yeah, I mean, I think it's got to be with a subject like this, it has to be more about the story um, and the passion for it. Because, uh, you know, let's be honest, you know, John L. Sullivan's not a household name these days, you know, so it's, it's not like a figure like Babe Ruth. So, you know, you, you hope, of course, that by, you know, writing a good story, um, and I, I know you've talked about it before, like the, the boys in the boat, no one's in the market for necessarily about a story about the 1936 Olympic rowing team. But, you know, you hope you write something that maybe catches, um, you know, catches something in the zeitgeist that, 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 that takes off. But I think you just go into writing the proposal, you know, you, you just, you know, I, I poured a lot of effort into it. You know, you write, uh, you know, what you hope is a sort of a good hook to it. You sort of lay out your marketing plan for it and, and you hope that you can find a, a publisher for it. How hard was it to find a publisher? It was hard. It was hard. I mean, we got, you know, I ended up with Lions Press, uh, you know, which was great to me, uh, sort of a mid-list mid uh, publisher. Um, didn't get a big five, you know, one of the big fives for this one. So, and, you know, that was some of the, the feedback was it's, you know, it's, it's, Sullivan's not necessarily a household name and it can be tough to sell a boxing book. Uh, and when you sort of combine the boxing book from history, you know, um, on the face of it, it's not one that automatically, you know, is going to jump out and say, Oh, this, this is going to be something that we think is going to be, have a really good prospect of, of, of catching fire. So it, it was, um, you know, it, it was tough not getting one of the, you know, top publishing houses. But as I was seeing in my writing career, though, also Jeff was, you know, uh, sort of seeing it as, you know, baseball players sort of working way up through the minor league system. I had done a couple of books with a local publisher on, on some Boston based subjects. And I was trying to make that move from single A to at least, you know, where I was with, with to double A or triple A on, uh, hopefully on the way to, you know, a major league. So just seeing that progression at the stage in the writing career was something I was working on also. But to me, this is an all-star level. If you're going to use those analogies, this is an all-star level. I'm not exaggerating. I, this is a freaking brilliant, brilliant book. I mean, it's just great. And I can't, I didn't, I'm kind of like you. I didn't really give a shit about John L. Sullivan, but <laughs> a, a friend of mine gave me the book and he said, I'm telling you, this is one of the best boxing books you'll read. And um, the thing that really does it for me, and I would love to talk about this if you're good with it, is just the depths of research. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder, all right. So, so I was reading your acknowledgements and you said, um, you wrote my sincere thanks go, go to the descendants of the relatives of John L on both sides of the Atlantic who were very gracious with their time. So, um, how do you go about that? How do you go about finding his relatives? How do you go about, uh, 
meeting with them? How do you go about getting information from them? Ancestry.com. Um, got myself a membership on there. Went to search through family trees of any of the characters in the book and was able to sort of wind my way through there on some of their forums, just doing a search, you know, for John L. Sullivan or uh, Richard K. Fox, who was another of the characters in there and coming across people who are doing research on their family trees and sort of one thing leads to another, you know, they, they'll have a contact with another descendant found out, you know, some of them in, still here in the Boston area. So, you know, just living like 10 miles away, you know, and, and meet up with him. Same with some of, um, his ring opponents, same thing. You know, they had descendants living in the area. Some of them had, you know, scrapbooks that were from their, and, you know, from, from their ancestors, but that that's where it started was going on ancestry.com and going through, uh, just seeing if there were any hits in, in the search engines. All right. So get, can you give me an example of a, uh, like a great, great sort of, oh my God, I can't believe I found this sort of moment from researching the book. Here's the biggest challenge I had with writing this book was trying to separate the myth from the reality. And um, let's see, just even back to trying to get the story of when he was born. So, you know, we John L. would always write, that, you know, he was born on October 15th, 1858. Um, through ancestry.com and, um, the, one of the contacts there, we were able to get, you know, the family Bible. And family Bibles got down as October 12th. And then we checked, um, you know, birth certificates and baptismal records and that, that all checks out. So, um, just even trying to get the basic facts like that, that, you know, I mean, that, that was, that was kind of good. I'll, I'm going to sort of turn the question on you a little bit though, too. One of the things that I was hoping was going to be true and didn't turn out if, if you don't mind. So I came across this story about Sullivan that after he won the heavyweight championship, he went undercover at Harvard university dressed as um, a Quaker. <laughs> And was, uh, was recruited into one of the local fraternities that Harvard was having a problem with. And according to the story, basically, uh, Sullivan gets recruited, get, goes into the fraternity and then basically tears off all his clothes and basically beats a dozen of them to a pulp, um, <laughs> to, to stop their hazing ring inside Harvard. I'm like, Oh my God, this is fantastic. I love this story. I'm like, you know, please let it be true. Please let it be true. Uh, but to my dismay, as I kept researching it, the same story popped up at UPenn, Cornell, basically <laughs> all the Ivies. And I, I was heartbroken because I'm like, I so wanted that story to be true. But yeah, but it wasn't. Oh, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. Um, how, do, how do you how do you know? Like, how do you decide? When something is a hundred years old, like, like you did an amazing job. One of my favorite uh, parts of this book was you sort of breaking down his fight is, you know, highly anticipated fight with gentleman, Jim uh, Corbett. And yeah. it was just like, you know, as Corbett returned to the corner at the end of the round, 
He believed that the rally proved he was the better man. Sensing that he could deliver a quick knockout, he told his seconds he wanted to continue to take the fight to Sullivan, but his corner convinced him to stick with his more patent, uh, patient strategy to wear down the champion. Across the ring, John L. seethed. So far, he did not appear to be the champion of old, but simply an old champion. Uh, still, he felt confident because he always possessed a knockout wallop. He knew that one big punch, one big punch was all he needed. How do you describe a fight that took place 100 years ago? So what is absolutely fascinating is to go through these newspaper accounts of the fights. And they are, I mean, just column after column after column, just detailing round by round, blow by blow, what was going on in the fights. And, you know, it's just astounding just the, the sheer blizzard of ink that would be on the page describing these fights. And it really would be. And, you know, some of uh, most of Sullivan's championship fights were fought on what were called the London prize ring rules. And a round would last anywhere from three seconds to 30 minutes. A round would only go as far as until one of the fighters was knocked down on the ground. So some of the Sullivan's fights had these preposterous round totals, you know, of like 75 rounds. But you will then have these accounts, 23rd round, you know, Sullivan comes out from the corner, hits a, you know, kill rain with the right hand and, uh, just detail after detail round by round. So that was real good scaffolding to try to build a narrative off of was to have these Reporters who are ringside, um, giving these just really up to the second accounts of what was going on in the fight. It, it, it's just remarkable how detailed these, these newspaper accounts were, uh, from the sports writers who were at the ring back, back then. So that, that was really the material that I needed to try to, to build an, the narrative for these fight scenes, which were, you know, really fun to write. I mean, that that's what I really enjoyed the most in, in, in doing the book. What is it um when, when you go to people like whatever, Maureen Sullivan, mm -hmm. uh, Brian Westwater, Larry Westwater, who, who are descendants of Sullivan's sister, um, are they do they feel connected to John L. Sullivan? Is it just some sort of family lore to them? Uh do they have a lot to tell you or show you, or are they sort of like Oh, a free lunch with a writer. This is great. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, you know, I didn't have that big of an expense account there, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's not like Jonathan Ike writing, you know, the Muhammad Ali story in terms of what, you know, the, the, the amount of material that anyone connected to the, the subject is going to be able to provide. Um, What's, you know, it, what they were able to do was to try to help separate some of the, the, the myth from the reality. Um, meeting with Brian in particular was a little crazy because even though he's probably, gosh, I don't know, four generations removed from John L. Sullivan, he actually looks like him. <laughs> wow, really? As well, which is a little bit, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy. So. Um, you know, so they have some old clippings and, and material. Um, so they're of age somewhat, but again, I mean, they're 
generations removed from, from the subject. So for me, they're not going to provide as much information and material that's going to go into the book as those contemporary accounts are that really are the, you know, the lifeblood of what I need to work with. Right. So our, um, I use a, I obviously I have an ancestry.com uh, account and I have a newspapers.com account. Are yeah. there other sort of resources out there? I feel like you're a, uh, you're a PhD and I'm just like a freshman uh, undergrad. Like when it comes to researching, what are the other sort of places you turn to little places that maybe people don't know about that are really good? I mean, those are all, those are two good resources. I also use a website called genealogybank.com that has a lot of uh, newspapers. Um, probably I, I put it right on par with um, newspapers.com. Um, doing research into Sullivan a little bit, but also the subsequent book I wrote was uh, called When the Irish Invaded Canada about uh, these attacks by Irish-American Civil War vets on, on Canada after uh, between 1866-1871. There's a lot of Irish-American newspapers in Genealogy Bank. Um, they also have like a collection of African-American newspapers. So if you're looking for a particular uh, ethnicity, that's a great resource as well. Uh, and, you know, just even going into census records, you know, I think those are on genealogybank.com uh, as well. Uh, you know, it's fascinating to look at the, the census records, the tax rolls, looking at Sullivan, um, you know, connected to that. He, during one of these uh, annual census, Boston lists his profession as a boxer. And that really was saying something at a time when there was no such thing as a professional boxer until Sullivan made it a lucrative enough income. You know, uh, if you were the heavyweight champion of the world before Sullivan came along, that was, you were just uh, uh, moonlighting. I mean, your day job was the, 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 the fighters were either bar owners. One up and coming fighter was the coroner of uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. But to write boxer on your census said something and it sort of gave me a little bit of an insight there. So, you know, being able to get those, those records is great uh, through these digital resources. So, um, genealogybank.com is another one that I would certainly highly recommend. And then just making visits to local arc, you know, the Boston city of Boston archives and even going through old, um, in, in the time period I was working in, you know, late 1800s, uh, they would have these old, really detailed block by block maps of, uh, the city of Boston. They have these for a lot of cities, but, uh, and Boston in particular has changed a lot, you know, since the 1880. You may, you may not think, you think of it maybe this old city, but, um, all the neighborhoods where Sullivan lived basically have been bulldozed over a couple times, but getting to these old maps that they were using for insurance purposes, you could see, you know, where the houses were, where the streets went and really gave you a, a good feel for a landscape that you can't see nowadays as well. Right. Um, in reading your book, I kept thinking over and over again, this is Mike Tyson a hundred years before Mike yep. Tyson. Yep. Were you thinking that too, or is that overly specific? Yes. No, absolutely. 
could not get it out of my head. Um, and I also read, there was this, um, they made some bad movie about John L. Sullivan in like, I think 1944, but I think it was the following year they made Gentleman Jim, where Errol Flynn was playing uh, Jim Corbett, Ward Bond playing John L. Sullivan. And there was a moment after Corbett beats Sullivan where Sullivan comes to the room, you know, congratulates Corbett, says he's a champ. And Tyson, I read in this article, I guess weeps every time that he sees this scene. <laughs> but thinking of everything that Sullivan was doing, okay, so, um, you know, he was uh, in a divorce trial where he supposedly, you know, uh, battered his wife. He was arrested for punching out a horse, being drunk. Um, he's starring in these theatrical performances. And I think maybe it was around, maybe a couple of years after I wrote the book, you know, Tyson's doing his one man show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was on HBO doing these, these monologues. Sullivan was doing the same thing in the 1880s. Um, you know, it, yeah, absolutely to a T. I was, I was like, it's just uncanny how much these two have in common. Yeah. The thing I actually, I found really fascinating and I kept thinking about, and as part of the brilliance of this book is, so here's this guy, John L. Sullivan. He's a, a racist. He beat his wife. He yep. was a drunk, a nonstop drunk until he stopped drinking late in his life. Um, he got on all levels of fights, all sorts of violence all over the place. Um, and yet throughout the book, I still find myself oddly rooting for him which is the weirdest thing of all time because he's so, again, like Mike Tyson, I still find myself rooting for Mike Tyson despite everything. And I wonder, did you, you're, you're writing about John O'Sullivan. Are you, as you're writing, you're like, God, this is the biggest asshole in the world. Or are you like, Oh, I kind of like this guy, even though he's an asshole. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, sometimes what's gold for you as a writer isn't exactly you know, some, you know, particularly in a biography, not necessarily a guy you would necessarily want to hang out with, you know, all the time, but colorful beyond belief. The number of stories that you can tell, um, incredible. And, you know, I, I, I found myself drawn to him in the same way I find myself drawn to Teddy Roosevelt. And, um, I don't think it's any acts. The two of them actually struck up a friendship, uh, yeah. as well, but they were, Two guys who basically had the model, you know, that life was like a fight and they were going to attack life every hour of every day. And I think that's what kind of drew me into Sullivan is that, you know, he, he, he's just nonstop motion. And some of the things that he did were, you know, despicable. But I think it's just that. That, that way of approaching life, you know, led to some great triumphs, but also come with those, those downsides. And, um, you know, I think the same thing can be said of, of Teddy Roosevelt as well. But as a biographer, you know, you're sort of drawn into this person, the humanity of a person, and you know that that's going to come with its good points and with its, its bad points as well. And that's sort of the job is to try to chronicle that. 
Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine. And while we're bunkered inside because of the coronavirus, we're here talking about 503 Sports, King of the... Are you kidding me? What? Seriously, are you kidding me? I... I've been stuck inside for four days, eating moldy cold pizza and drinking watered-down coffee. And everywhere I turn, you are standing there. Just get out of my face, man. This sucks so badly, I can't even... So, no 503 Sports, Kings of the... Get out of my face. You don't find it frustrating not being able to follow up with questions? (laughs) Oh, I do. Yeah. 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 I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing that this is what bothers me the most after doing this book and that I will never understand. So John L. Sullivan, basically not much of a drinker before he becomes heavyweight champion in 1882. Mm -hmm. Then he's drinking nonstop for the better part of two decades. And according to Sullivan, He's sitting in a hotel in Terre Haute, Indiana, 1905. Oh, yeah. Figures He orders a drink, figures he's earned a million dollars in a ring. He spent about a half million dollars of it on boots. Says he takes a drink, pours it into a planter, and never has another drink for the rest of his life. Now, whether that story is true or not, I don't know. I'd love to know if it was. But by most accounts, he then stops drinking. I mean, he's a terrible alcoholic for two decades, stops drinking, becomes a temperance speaker, and, and, and never drinks again. And I, I gotta know how that happened. I, I just, I don't understand. So yeah, things like that are definitely frustrating that I don't think I'm, you know, you, you're just not going to get the answer to those questions. Do you have, do you ever have to resist the urge? To venture again, like I meant when I wrote a, I wrote a book about Walter Payton and when the book came out, one of the criticisms I got was I didn't address whether he had CTE or not. And I always said, well, Mm. I didn't know. I didn't know. And people said, well, maybe you could have, you should have taken more of a stab at it. And I wonder when you're writing a book like this, do you have to ever resist the temptation to venture a guess in some areas? Yeah, you do. I mean, I mean, it's a challenge, I think, for any biographer, any writer of history is to, you know, when you're, when you're reading something and a history book and you come across the word perhaps, you kind of like, eh. Yeah, right. You know, you, you know, it's just better to not even go down that road. You know, it's, and it's a temptation. I'm sure I've, I've probably fallen prey to it also where, you know, you, you want to surmise what, what has happened, but you really have to stick with what the facts are there. So yeah, that's always a constant struggle. That's actually interesting because when I was a, I think if you look at my first, definitely my first two books, there's, t- there's, there are probably some instances where I put myself in the head of the subject. And that is an impossibility. Like, there's no way you can't say Barry Bonds was thinking so and so as he was standing there, because for all you know, he was thinking about some episode of the Smurfs he watched when he was three. You know, like, mm-hmm. but it is a temptation to take the information you have and sort of come up with a conclusion. And I thought in this book you did that at zero percent of the time, and it just seems like that takes a restraint that's pretty freaking impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think some of you. You learn, I mean, every book you write, 
right? You're gonna you're gonna learn things from mm-hmm. it and and know where you've probably gone a little bit too far out out on that limb and and just try to to learn from those examples, you know, in, in the next time out also. Yeah, I would agree. Um, my favorite part of the book, hands down, I actually, uh, I sent this to a friend of mine today. I, I texted it to him, um, was he wrote about, he was done with fighting, basically done with fighting and he was way deep in alcoholism. And he, he is just a sad, pathetic heap of a person. And he got an offer to go to St. Louis and work <laughs> as a greeter at a, at a pub in St. Louis. And they basically were going to pay him, uh, to sit there and shake hands. And you wrote, Within weeks, however, the novelty dissipated. The saloon returned to its former non-glory, populated by outcast grifters and criminals. The depressing surroundings, contemptuous patrons, and menial work dragged Sullivan down. The ex-champion sat around at the end of the bar with a perpetual scowl. That is when he didn't fall asleep in his chair, verbally swatting at the stray barflies who buzzed too long in his airspace. A surly greeting of, what in the hell do you want, awaited slack-jawed gawkers. The advertising cards that boasted Sullivan Quote, will meet all comers in any number of rounds at his buffet, further chafe the dignity of former ring royalty. That is so freaking great. And it, it's the story of a million different fighters, obviously, in, in different form, but the same sort of conclusion. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of interested. Like, how did you report? How do you get information about a guy when he's no longer in the spotlight? Well, this is what was really interesting about Sullivan and what really speaks to his being this for the first sports superstar. And to Sullivan's credit, he learned this very early was that people uh, weren't necessarily attracted to John L. Sullivan because he was the heavyweight champion of the world. They were attracted to John L. Sullivan because he was John L. Sullivan. And that's how he was able to make a million dollars. It wasn't because he was earning a lot of money in the ring. It was because he was earning $5,000 a pop to be an umpire at a baseball game and six, 7,000 people would show up to see him. Or he would cover himself in white powder and do what was called living statuary in these Greek, imposing like Greek and Roman gods on the stage. And so it was outside of the ring where he made a lot of his money. And so you know, one of the just as interesting I thought as him being the first real boxing superstar and champion was, all right, what's going to happen to him when he's no longer the champion? And he found out that people were still selling out theaters just to see him on stage. Um, you know, it's probably John L. Sullivan and Buffalo Bill are the two most famous men probably of the, you know, 1880s, 1890s. So even after he's no longer the champion, it's still news anytime John L. Sullivan is in town. So the number of stories about him doesn't really peter away as, as you might think. Um, you know, he lived, he lived his life on the road. Uh, he didn't even have like a, a house in Boston that, that he lived in for a good 20 years. So even after he retired, he's, he's just constantly traveling. The country and every time he comes to town, you know, every city's got what five, six local newspapers. Um, and telegraph wires will transmit those stories around the country. So there's just 
a lot of fodder that was still there, a lot of coverage of him that was still there, even though he was no longer the champion. So being able to get those stories uh, was still possible, even after he was no longer the champion. Is there literally zero video, video, uh, zero audio of him or do, do things exist? I've never seen audio. There is a video clip. If you go to YouTube, um, it's from, I think, 1910. So he's 52 years old. Um, looks like he's 80. He's, I guess, the spitting image of Wilford Brimley, I'm, I'm going to say. Probably about 250 pounds. So he's in, I think it's Reno, covering the uh, Jack Johnson title fight um, as a newspaper correspondent. And there's some video with him with uh, Jim Corbett, who's there. But you can see Sullivan uh, just doing the rounds for the punching bag. And even at 52, 250 pounds, you can still see his fists are sort of, you know, just moving really quickly on, on the bag. So that's, that's the only video that I've seen of him. And even, even getting still photographs of him in the ring. Um, there's only a handful of them, uh, mostly from, he had a fight in 1889 in the backwoods of, uh, outside Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Should have gone there when you were doing the far book. Uh, yeah. Jeff, uh <laughs> damn it. Um, but <laughs> literally in the backwoods of, of Mississippi. Um, against fire named Jake Kilrain, and there's some still photographs that were that were done at, at that fight. But even outside of that, we don't have m- many of the, the photographs of him in the ring, yeah. which would be great you, to have. I mean, just be awesome. Yeah. How, how do you um, how do you promote a book on John L. Sullivan? Like the book is about to come out, mm-hmm. and you're probably like, are, do you are you going mainly through sort of people who are fascinated by American history? Are you trying to promote it on? Sports talk radio, blah, blah, blah. How do you go about it? So it's trying to, you know, in, in the marketing plan, sort of break down who I think is going to be interested in. Of course, I think, all right, sports fans, boxing fans. Um, but then I also flagged Irish Americans. And in a way, I, I think I may have had better inroads, uh, with hitting the Irish American dynamic than I did necessarily on on the sports one since it's it's so broad and um you know i did get some inroads in 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 some boxing areas but um you know i i had my better connections and going to like irish american audiences here in, in new england particularly in the boston area um which surprised me a bit you know, I thought I'd do better on in, in the boxing and sports realm. I thought that was going to be a little bit easier than than what it was. Um, so I, I, I sort of putting when I put the, together the book proposal is thinking of um, I think it's what Seth Godin like it's called you know tribes. Who are the tribes who would be interested in in, in this topic and. You know, I, I think it's good to try to come up with ones that are just beyond maybe what the you think the, the natural and the obvious ones are, because it can surprise you in terms of the audience you think that's going to be a natural for the book. Well, it may, it may not be, but here's another sort of tribe that you've identified that becomes a little bit more more fruitful. So I think taking a look at the different ways you can break down a subject helps that way. Right. Um 
You wrote on your uh, on your website. You said, uh, "I'm a total uh, total history geek, favorite historical figure, Teddy Roosevelt." I love writing about history because it allows me to indulge my passion, travel back in time, and constantly learn more about humanity's incredible backstory. Um, and I'm I am I am fascinated. We are sitting here today with, I mean, uh, an insane presidency in the middle of a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. I, this is totally unrelated to John L. Sullivan. I kind of wonder mm-hmm. if, as a as a as a guy who sort of views himself as a historian and certainly views things in the sort of prism of, of history and its place in history. Uh, how are we going to be looking at this 50 years from now? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. So my mantra had for a long time been when people say, well, nothing like this has ever happened before to say, no, yeah, it has. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> I do find myself increasingly though saying, yeah, I'm going to give you this one. I don't think this has happened, uh, before, uh, and, and, which is a little disconcerting because I think part of why we want to have these historical stories as, as touch points is to let us know that, yeah, you know, it has, it has happened before. People have gotten through tough times before. This is how they've done it. These are the mistakes that they've made. And, you know, I have written a few stories lately about the, uh, it is not necessarily connected to the coronavirus, but about the 1918 flu when, when the centennial, um, had occurred. And, you know, I think what we're going through in a way, the, the good thing to latch on to here, is that I think we are learning the lessons from the past. So during the 1918 flu, there was a a war bond parade in Philadelphia that everyone crowded into. And then basically 10,000 people came down with the flu and, and died. And, you know, Philadelphia was sort of ground zero for the pandemic. So I, the social distancing and, and all these restrictions we're going through, I think at least hopefully encouragingly are us trying to learn the lessons from the past, um, to not make the same mistakes. And that's why I think we need to be learning history and why I think it's very dangerous that I think there's less and less connection to history than, than there has been. And um, I, I think we need, we need to have these touchstones. We had, and we need to have these things, uh, these stories to, to know that tough times have been gone through before this, is what people did right this is what people did wrong. Does, um, and I ask this without any sort of bias, actually, I, I'm just actually interested. Does, uh, does Trump remind you of any past presidents? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, Again, when we say that, you know, these things have happened before, I mean, no, it hasn't. Uh, No, it's it's completely (laughs) on his own here. I mean, the closest I can think of is probably Andrew Jackson, just in terms of, you know, a populist who didn't have uh, really much political experience, but... You know, that was a time also where, you know, 
the path into the presidency was at least through the military and he was a you know a military hero uh, but no we're we're in a whole new ball game right now yay yeah <laughs> it's great <laughs> um yeah well Listen, seriously, not to saying this, Strong Boy, The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's First Sports Hero. I had no interest in reading this book. It is not a book I would have picked up just because I, I never have thought much about, uh, you know, century-old boxers and, and whatnot. And again, my friend Mike Moody gave it to me as a gift, and it's, it's, it's instant classic status. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It's definitely one of the best sports books I've ever read. Um, there's a movie in this book, too. I'm sure people tell you that all the time. There are about 70 movies in this book. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just ridiculously good, man. It's ridiculously good. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it means a lot coming, coming for you too, Jeff. I really appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Christopher Klein, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Christopher on Twitter at History Author and visit his website at ChristopherKlein.com. One can listen to Two Writers Sing and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>